Thank you to our music team. Appreciate you guys. And thank you to you for singing. Let me ask you if you would please open your Bibles with me this morning to Mark chapter 2. As we look at the one who will hold us fast. In Mark chapter 2, we begin sort of a new section in the Gospel of Mark. It runs us into chapter 3, the very beginning of chapter 3. There are five scenarios in which Mark lays out for us that highlight for us the questioning of the authorities against Jesus. Uh, The first one here begins with a question of his authority to forgive sin, a question which he uh, promptly puts down. He answers that he certainly can do what he says he can do. And then the questions continue and they culminate with Jesus' question in Mark chapter 3 back to the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and they also result in what we'll see in chapter 3, the very beginnings of the plot to eliminate Jesus, to kill him. So we're in Mark chapter 2 and already the shadow of the cross looms over us. Mark chapter 2, this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 to 12, if you would please follow along as I read. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say? To the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather together around your word, we pray that you would teach us. We ask that you would open our minds and open our eyes to understand the the truths of your word. And we pray, O God, that you would help us to feed on Jesus Christ. As we look at a familiar passage to likely all of us, We pray, Lord, that that familiarity would not cause us to gloss over in our thinking, but that our hearts would be ready to receive the food of your word. Grant us a humility that is is manifested in a teachable desire to know who you are and to know your word, to encounter and experience you again through the power of your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take up your sword 
and that you would use it for whatever means appropriate in each individual here. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's no surprise to any of us at any point in time, but as you look at the headlines recently, you discover that there are not only a lot of problems going on right now, but there are a lot of big problems happening right now. As I was scrolling through even this morning the various headlines, one possible big problem for certain of us is that there apparently will soon be a shortage of sriracha hot sauce. Shocking, I know, it's stock up now. There are all kinds of various problems, some silly problems, some serious problems, some individual and personal problems, some community-wide, even, even global problems that stretch out and touch everyone's lives in different individual ways. Some of those headlines, more serious ones that I read recently, Russia shells chemical plant sheltering civilians, Ukraine says. As Russia continues to bully the nation of Ukraine and as they continue to run out of ammunition and run low on uh, basically everything else, the attacks, the shells keep coming, even in places where civilians are holed up. Another headline, inflation tightens economic squeeze. We're all feeling that in various ways. Last month, the inflation rate on things like gas and food and and many other everyday commodities that we need rose by 8.6%. I was feeling that as I spent $41 to fill up the gas tanks just to cut my grass the other day. Another, in, another headline that perhaps we have forgotten was even a problem, Iran will block UN surveillance at nuclear sites. This particular article cited that, and of course it's speculative, we don't know this for sure, but this particular article cited that Tehran could be just weeks away from weaponized depleted uranium. Another one, man charged in Kavanaugh murder plot. You may have heard about that. One of uh, a, a man who who called the police on himself, thankfully, after seeing some some uh, armed security there, a man had plotted to kill Justice Brett Kavanaugh because of the, amongst other things, because of the leaked story that uh, could possibly end the so-called right to abort children. So a man flew from California and with a weapon in hand and boots that were padded softly so that he wouldn't be heard, crept up outside of Justice Kavanaugh's house with every intent to kill him, but thankfully that plot was foiled. Another headline, Vandals Firebomb New York Pregnancy Center. Apparently there's a group called Jane's Revenge, whose motto it is, whose motto is if abortion isn't safe, then you aren't either. There have been multiple pregnancy centers throughout the nation, one in North Carolina, this one in New York, and another in Wisconsin, that have, amongst other things, been firebombed. They throw firebombs into this pregnancy center in order to burn it down. 
those are just some of the national and, and, and uh, global headlines. And then there's not to mention all the various things that we have here individually going on, all the various problems that we have in our very own lives. The reality is that life in a fallen world is full of problems, isn't it? Some of them are ones that we can tackle by God's grace. Some of them are ones that he has given us the means to be able to overcome in various ways. And others of them leave us just scratching our heads because we are reminded once again that we are not God and life is hard. There's a variety of problems, and yet they all, no matter what type of problem, no matter who deals with the problem, the reality is that all of those problems, every single one of them, have one thing in common, and that is the source of them. The source of every problem that mankind has ever faced, the source of every problem that mankind will ever face, is sin. Sin is the root cause of every single problem in the headlines, every single problem you will ever deal with in the entirety of your life. Every single problem that has happened since Genesis chapter 3, sin is the source of that problem. And yet I think that we far too often forget the realities of that. Oh, we know that sin is the problem, yet we often jump to other solutions rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sin is the cause of every chaos. It's the source of all of our suffering. It's the root of every single problem. And yet our passage before us this morning shows us definitively that Jesus came to deal with that particular problem. Jesus doesn't have to put a committee together. He doesn't have to raise the necessary funds. It doesn't take him 20 plus years to begin to show global results if that is his will. Jesus solves mankind's problems simply by declaring your sins are forgiven. How many problems does a paralytic have? How many problems did a paralytic living in Jesus' day have? Before there was an American Disabilities Act, which put certain requirements, legal requirements, on various places. Before there were care facilities or therapies. How many problems did a paralytic have in the days of Jesus? And yet what we see here in our passage is that Jesus, of course, saw the man's physical problem. Everyone saw the man's physical problem. The man himself knew quite well what his problem was. And yet Jesus goes down deeper to the bigger, more pressing, more urgent problem. And not only forgives or or rather heals the man of his paralysis, but pronounces the man guilt-free, totally forgiven of all of his sins. We've seen already in Mark chapter 1 in verses 14 and 15 when Mark gives us the summary statement of the entire ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come primarily to heal and to cast out demons and to make clean, though he certainly did those things. 
But Jesus came primarily to announce that there was a kingdom that had come. And that kingdom just so happened to belong to God himself. You'll remember Jesus' pronouncement that the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God was at hand, and now the right response to that nearness of the kingdom in the king himself, the right response was not simply to be excited about him, though that would be appropriate, but the right response was to repent of your sin and to believe in the gospel that he preached. And so from then on, as we move through the gospel of Mark, we understand that when it's said, for instance, here in our passage that Jesus was preaching the word to them, we understand that what Jesus was preaching to them was the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus begins to preach this gospel and word gets out, the popularity grows, his fame spreads, people come, and Jesus does things that are observable. People can see that when this man lays his hands on you, or when this man speaks over you, when this man declares you to be healed or clean, you somehow are those things. And you can see, of course, how those observable realities, the things you can see, would attract people, right? But here in Mark chapter 2, Jesus begins to get to the things that you cannot see. Those things that mankind is not so concerned about. But we see that while mankind may not be so concerned about their sins, Jesus Christ is. And so with the announcement of the kingdom of God, with the coming of the kingdom and the nearness of the kingdom, we have in the ministry of Jesus Christ, and even now today, the overlap between the kingdom of God and its spiritual presence and a fallen world with the effects of sin. What we see Jesus do in his miracles is to unravel not just the effects of sin, but begin to unravel sin itself. How? By saying things like, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, of course, was not just pronouncing this. Jesus would demonstrate this by becoming the sin bearer. Jesus cannot simply pronounce a verdict of forgiven without then paying the penalty in some way, somehow. He will not, in his compassion, violate the justice and the righteousness of God. He can't. The Savior already has his eyes fixed on Golgotha, fixed on the cross, fixed on the the very thing in which he came to do, to forgive his people's sins. And yet the thing that we cannot see, that reality of forgiveness, Jesus demonstrates by showing us signs that we can see. But as we've already talked about, signs are not the point, are they? No one going to Disneyland sees the sign and parks and stops and says, we're here. You go to the thing that the sign points you to. And so as we, as we look at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 then, I want to I break this up into two simple parts. And then I want to circle back and look at the various responses, the three different responses of the crowd, of the friends and the paralytic, of the scribes as well. And we'll see if there might be some gold there for us. 
First of all, as we come to this text, as we think about the reality that Jesus solves our greatest problems as the reality that Jesus deals with mankind's biggest need, we see the point of the parable. It's clear that Jesus can not only heal, but Jesus can forgive sins and then he can prove it. So we see first then as we approach this passage in verses 1 to 5, we see that very declaration. In verses 1 to 5, we have Jesus declaring his authority to forgive sin. Jesus declares his authority to forgive sin. Mark sets the scene up for us in verses 1 and 2. He says, and when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days. When we last left off last week, we saw that Jesus is making clean the leper, caused the leper to disobey Jesus and to go and spread the news, and it created a situation where the crowd so swarmed him that he couldn't get into the towns anymore, but he was confined to desolate places where people went out to him to meet him. Apparently, the crowds have calmed down a little bit, the the popularity has died down a little bit, so much so that Perhaps the people weren't expecting it, but Jesus could now enter the towns once again, and he went back to Capernaum, a place that Mark tells us was functioning, at that time at least, as his home. So he goes home, and we don't know exactly which home he was in because Mark doesn't tell us. We suspect it was likely Peter's home, the home where he had healed Peter's mother-in-law, the home where most likely after the synagogue service, they went back to have a lunch meal. And Jesus happened to do some miraculous healing there. So they go home and the people hear about it. And verse 2 tells us, and many were gathered together. So that there was no room, not even at the door. And when we picture a home, we need to not picture our homes. Those homes were not nearly as large as our homes are today. And so we don't know the dimensions of this particular home. It's really not that important You could probably pack a house in those days with about 20 people or so. Regardless, Mark is not interested in telling us the number of people, but rather to tell us that there was so many people, even the door itself was blocked by the people. They were so interested and so intrigued by this one who not only healed, but this one who we saw back in chapter one at his very first preaching event demonstrated to the people that he had an authority in the way that he taught. They had never heard teaching like this before, and so the the preacher comes back into town, and they're there. They fill the home so much so that it's blocked even at the door, and what was Jesus doing? The end of verse 2 says, and he was preaching the word to them. You see, there was something engaging, of course, about the, the actions of Jesus. Everybody wants to see miracles performed. But there was something equally engaging about the preaching of Jesus. What they were doing it was listening to him preach. We, we don't have any record yet of miracles performed. And so it's a reminder to us of the importance of the preaching of the word of God, the the preaching of Jesus Christ, of the, you might say, legacy and responsibility that Jesus himself to the disciples and then down to the church has left us with, the responsibility to preach the word. And they loved it, apparently. They were all there. They crowded in. It was probably, it was certainly standing room only. And 
You can imagine that in light of the next scene that we're about to see, when these friends bring their paralytic friend there, they can't even find a way to get in. There was no room to squeeze themselves in. They were shoulder to shoulder, most likely, in this particular house. And so we have the setting here, and then we have the paralytic and his friends. In verse 3, it's interesting. It doesn't say, and some men came. It just says, and they came. Mark's style of storytelling sort of pulls you into this story. Uh, Most of our Bible translations don't do it because it's a little bit awkward in English, but Mark likes to use a, a present action verb to describe this coming. It's not, and they came, it's they were coming to him. So, you know, when you tell a story sometimes, and it's, of course, a past tense story, you shift from the past tense to the present tense. And so we were walking along and all of a sudden, you use the present tense in order to pull people into the story a little bit more. And this is what Mark does when he tells these stories. And so they came bringing to him, to Jesus, a paralytic carried by four men. And so these men show up, there's a paralytic and on each side of the stretcher, on all four corners, there's a man carrying him. They must have loved him dearly and deeply to bring him to Jesus. And it's a reminder to us of what Jesus was doing, the power that he was demonstrating and the ability to heal people. So if you've got a paralytic friend and you know there's a guy in town who can heal people, you take him to the guy who can heal people. So they bring him in. And Mark tells us that they when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they they sort of analyzed the situation. They saw the blocked door and perhaps one of them went in front and sort of peeked his way around and saw there's no possible way even one of us is squeezing in there, let alone to carry a stretcher in there. We got to figure out a different plan. And so in those days, most of the homes had an external staircase that led up to the rooftop, which was a flat roof that functioned in those days like our decks and our patios function today. In fact, this is still pretty common in the Middle East. If you want to get some cool air in the cool of the night, you go up onto the roof. You want to dry out your laundry or, or even in Acts chapter 10, we see Peter using his rooftop as a place for prayer. You go up on top of the roof. And so it, was, it really wasn't uncommon to go on top of the roof, but it was a little bit less common to unroof the roof which is literally what Mark tells us. They couldn't get in. They, they removed the roof above him. Mark tells us they literally, it's unroofed the roof. So they see the problem, but these men who loved their friends so much, who knew what Jesus was capable of, these men were not going to let a problem keep them from getting their friend to Jesus. They may not have known the fullness of who Jesus was, but they knew enough about Jesus to know we got to get this guy to Jesus. And so they go up on top of the roof and they begin to dig a hole into the roof, which is less of a project than what it would be if someone were to climb onto this roof. God bless them for the slope of it. If someone were to try to climb up onto the roof and dig a hole through it, it would be 
a bit more of a chore than it was in those days. They were roofs with cross beams and secured with thatch over the top and then mud over the top and, and sometimes even a, a sort of a tar-like substance. And often those roofs would have to be resealed each year as they, as they degraded and rotted and they would have to be constructed once again. And so the men go up there. Sometimes the roofs had tile on them. Mark doesn't tell us exactly the composition of the roof. Mark just tells us they took the roof off of the place. You can imagine what it would have been like to be in the house. You can imagine what it would have been like to be the preacher. If you've ever taught a Bible study or preached a sermon, you know that sometimes things distract you. Well, if you've ever heard someone digging into the roof above your head with dirt falling on top of you, then you would certainly understand this is super distracting. What is going on up there? The men make a hole, the men make a hole big enough to lower the cot down into it with their friend and apparently they even without lasers and all the wonderful things that we get to use now, apparently they, they aimed pretty well and they dropped the man right down in front of Jesus. Mark tells us at the end of verse 4, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And now we can predict that likely you could have heard a pin drop in that room. The roof opens up. And a man comes down, lowered on a bed, and perhaps, this is just speculation, we don't know, but perhaps they knew who the man was. I mean, after all, if he was a local, they likely would have known who the paralytic in town was. Perhaps even some of them had helped them, helped the man in various ways. And so here comes George laying, you know, on the cot and dropped down. His name wasn't George, by the way, that's just, just for effect, Here he comes, laying down in front of Jesus, and now it gets awkward. You have to wonder what they would have been thinking. Not only has Jesus' sermon been interrupted, but now there's a man lying in front of him. Dirt in his hair, most likely. They had to have been watching Jesus like a hawk. What is he going to do now? And most likely, had this been a scribe, one of the teachers that they, had, they were used to, though one that Jesus put to shame, most likely a scribe would have been deeply offended. How dare you? Don't you see I'm teaching here? You have no right to interrupt the teaching. But verse 5 tells us that that's not how the Savior responds. And verse 5 highlights for us what Jesus saw that no human being saw. Verse 5 says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Everyone saw the man come through the roof. Everyone saw the man lying there. Everyone saw the reality that the man was not getting up from the place in which he lie, which could only then make them assume that the man could not get up. Everyone saw the realities that the man was paralyzed, and perhaps there were even some visible results or some some visible signs of his paralysis. Everyone saw those things, but Jesus demonstrates who he is. 
what he saw was something that man cannot see. He saw their faith. And you'll notice that it's not even just the paralytic's faith that the man, that, that Jesus saw, but it's their faith. And I think this is why Mark says they came. He doesn't highlight the names of the men, but then he uses that they, them, they, their interaction to show us that it wasn't just the paralytic who had faith. It was all of them who had faith. Why do you think they tore the roof off the place? Because they had faith. Because they were determined in their faith to lay hold of what Jesus came to offer. More about that later. So the man comes down and Jesus says to him, in a term of endearment, son, your sins are forgiven. Just like that. We have no record of not only the response of the leper, we have no record of any words being spoke of the paralyzed man. Excuse me, I said leper. We have no record of him even saying anything. And yet Jesus can see into his heart and he can see the necessary requirements for forgiveness. What has Jesus said is the right response to his coming, the right response to his preaching. Repent and believe in the gospel. Apparently, this man had those qualities in his heart because Jesus sees them and he pronounces the man forgiven. Of course, it wasn't enough, as I mentioned already, it wasn't enough just for Jesus simply to say your sins are forgiven. Jesus had to do something about the sins of his people, the sins of this man. Other religions may have a God who can sort of just wipe away their debt record against him willy-nilly, just on a whim. He's, Allah's having a good day, and he just says, you know what, forgive it, forget about it. Paradise. But the reality is that the biblical God cannot do that. He cannot violate his justice and simply wipe sins away. There has to be atonement for sin. And this is what the Old Testament, this is what the sacrificial system that these people lived in, this is what it highlighted for them over and over and over again as Paul sums it up, the wages of sin is death. And these people knew that because over and over again they killed animals. They placed their sins upon the animals And then they cut the throats of the animals and they held them as the life drained from them. They not only saw the blood flowing, the the endless river of blood flowing out of the temple, they smelled it, but they felt it as the life left that animal. They knew there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And so already the cross, the, the shadow of the cross hangs over us Here, Jesus had come to forgive sins, but he had come to do so as the one who would pay for those sins. And so we see then Jesus exerting his or declaring his authority to forgive sin. And then in verses 6 to 12, we see Jesus demonstrate his authority to forgive sin. He's declared it. But anybody can say your sins are forgiven and no one can actually physically see that. You can't verify that. 
So what does Jesus do in order to prove it? He shows them. He shows them in a demonstration of his authority that he can do what he says he can do. In verses 6 and 7 then, we have some opponents in the crowd. Scribes, as Mark calls them. Luke tells us there were also Pharisees there, but Mark focuses in on the scribes, perhaps because Mark has already referenced the scribes in his gospel. He's told us that the people effectively like Jesus' teaching more than they like the teaching of the scribes. So if you are of the class, the scribes, if you are of the class of the elite teachers... If you're the one with all the letters behind your name, you're the one getting all the, the, the calls to come and guest preach somewhere, if that's your occupation, and then all of a sudden another preacher in town comes and people are not listening to you anymore because you're boring, as really is what they said in Mark 1, but they go and listen to the guy who teaches like they've never heard before, the guy who has authority behind his teaching. You can imagine that it rubbed them the wrong way. Wait a second, Jesus, we used to be the head honchos. We used to be the top dogs. We used to get all the invitations, and now you're stealing our thunder. And this is exactly what Mark begins to set up, as I said, will culminate in chapter 3, when it was the very beginning of the plot to kill Jesus. Mark highlights for us already in chapter 2 the conflict that Jesus' ministry was marked by. And so in verses 6 to 7, we see this questioning. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, there are a few things that we need to understand about them and this particular situation. You'll notice, first of all, where is their questioning occurring? Not out loud, but in their hearts. The Jews thought of that as in their mind. So we think of this as typically the mind. So the, the, the internal place in which you have thoughts, that's the heart. And so that's where those things were occurring. That's where these questions are happening, in their hearts. And the first question they ask is, why does he speak that way? Because they understand that to speak that way is blasphemy is to exert yourself into the position of God himself. No one can say your sins are forgiven except for God. The priest would pronounce a forgiveness of sin, but that forgiveness of sin was from God and everyone knew it wasn't a priest. But Jesus says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Clearly, clearly showing who he really is. He's God. Rather than come to the understanding that in light of their questions, who can forgive sins but God alone, rather than realizing that they're right and God is in front of them, they continue in their opposition to Jesus. And so verse 8 tells us immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Notice that Mark does not say immediately Jesus, reading the look of confusion upon their face, said to them, 
But Mark highlights for us Jesus' deity. Perhaps it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps it's just Jesus' own divine prerogative. Perhaps it's both, likely both. But Mark highlights for us that Jesus perceived in his spirit exactly what the men were thinking. They didn't have to say a word because Jesus knew. Jesus knows exactly what you're thinking. All the time. Every moment. And so Jesus has a question for them. Why do you question these things in your hearts? On one hand, you can, you can understand the shock of the scribes. Wait a minute. That guy just said his sins are forgiven. But I've read my Bible. Only God can forgive sin. And yet what we see highlighted here is not just a curiosity, not just a, a humble searching for information. But what we see here is a defiant opposition. That's what is behind their questioning. And so Jesus just questions them right back. And then he has a series of other questions, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. There's a lot of ink spilled on what exactly Jesus meant. Perhaps he meant by why, what he meant by what is easier. Is it easier to simply say your sins are forgiven and no one can verify that? Or is it easier to say to the man, get up, take up your mat and go home, which someone can verify? If I say that to someone who's paralyzed, rise, take up your bed and go home, they're not going to do it because I have no ability to forgive or to, or to heal. And so it could be that. I think this was probably a trick question. A question that left them going, uh, I'm pretty sure neither one of those things is easy. You can't forgive sin unless you're God. You can't heal someone unless you at least have God's power. I think he left them in a stupor. And this is what Jesus would do over and over again in his ministry to the people who were opposed to him. He didn't beg them to let him into their hearts. He questioned them back. You tell me what's easier. To do the impossible or to do the impossible? Which one's easier? Uh, I think I'll go home now. And so he sets them up. But verse 10, he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus' main priority that day was to forgive the sins of this man. Because that was the man's biggest problem. And yet Jesus seized the opportunity to show everyone, but especially to show these scribes that not only could he pronounce the forgiveness of sin, but he could demonstrate that he was verifiably the one who could make that pronouncement. He declared it, and then he demonstrated his power. Jesus says, just so you know, 
just so that you can see that I have the authority to do the thing I just did. It's not as if the man's sins weren't forgiven until he got up. The man was forgiven. If Jesus says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. But so that everyone else around could see, Jesus says to him, take up your mat. I can't wait to ask that man in heaven one day, hey, what was that like? None of the gospel writers told us about what you were thinking, but what was going on in your mind? I don't know, this is speculative, but I wonder if after the pronouncement of the man's forgiveness, if, if Jesus looked him in the eye and said to him, son, your sins are forgiven, did the man even remember that he was paralyzed? The greatest thing in the world had just happened to the man. I don't know that he was all that concerned anymore about his physical condition. Which is yet another reminder to us of the sweetness of the gospel, isn't it? That we live in the time of overlap between the the kingdom of God and the fallen world. That what we are in now spiritually, the kingdom of God will one day come physically and there will be no more sin and there will be no more effects of sin. But the reality is we live in the overlap between Jesus' pronouncement of forgiveness and the ongoing effects of life in a fallen world that God has cursed. And yet the the ongoing reality, indeed the fight of the Christian, is to constantly remember that the greatest thing that you need has already been given to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that sets the physical in its proper place. You may not be healed. That operation might not go well no matter how hard we pray. The reality is, you're going to die one day. And so did this paralytic. And so what you need to deal with first is not your big problems, but your biggest problem. And if that problem has been dealt with through faith in Jesus Christ, then it sets in proper perspective every other problem. And so Jesus demonstrates that the Son of Man, one of his favorite titles, has authority. I think that the scribe should have known exactly what he was talking about. Jesus uses the term Son of Man likely to to veil his real identity. He could have said, so that you may know that the Son of God has authority, but that would have gotten him stoned real quick. So instead, he uses a familiar phrase from the Old Testament, one that shows up especially in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man. And he refers here to the authority of the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, we see the Ancient of Days, the Father, uh, give authority and a kingdom and power to the Son of Man. I think Jesus was referencing that and the scribes who were Bible scholars should have known that. But it teaches us the reality that you can know your Bible so, so well. But if you don't have a humble heart to receive the truth of the Spirit of God as he illuminates your mind to understand the Word of God, it will fall on deaf ears every time. And so he shows them. And then verse 12 says, The man rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. He obeyed. 
contrasted to the leper who chose to disobey, this man, even though he may not have understood if he could have done it or not, obeyed. Because that's what faith does. That's what forgiven people do. They obey. So he obeys. And Mark says, so that all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Of course they hadn't. Because that kind of thing just doesn't happen unless God does it. You'll notice that the crowd was amazed. They, they glorified God. How did they glorify God? They glorified God by saying, we never saw anything like this. In other words, God's here today. But as we think then about the responses, and I want to finish our time then thinking about these three different responses. As we think about the responses, we need to note how the crowd did not respond. So there are three different ways in which these folks respond to Jesus. And these three different ways that we see in this particular passage highlighted for us are the very same three different ways in which someone who hears about Jesus responds today in one of these three ways. The first way is interest. Mark starts with the crowd and he ends with the crowd, right? He starts with the reality that Jesus' popularity and the desire to hear his teaching was so great that they packed the house. And then he ends with the reality that not only were they already interested in Jesus and amazed by him, but they were even more amazed and they even glorified God by saying, we never saw anything like this. But I ask you, what does chapter 1 verse 15 say is the right response to Jesus? To repent and believe in the gospel. Do we read about any repenting and believing happening here? We read about some believing, but not from the crowd. You see, the crowd was deeply, deeply interested in Jesus. Mark likes to use this word crowd a lot to emphasize for us the popularity of Jesus. It shows up almost 40 different times up until chapter 10. The crowd is always pictured as people who are interested in Jesus, and they are often the objects of Jesus' compassion, but the crowd is never said to repent and believe the gospel. Instead, the crowds are passive. And, and actually, just like here in this particular story, the crowds most often in the Gospel of Mark serve as barriers to block those who desperately want to get to Jesus. So that those who want to get to Jesus have to either force their way in or dig through the roof to get to him. Despite what we naturally think, popularity does not necessarily equal success in the ministry of Jesus Christ or in the ministry of his church. If a large crowd of people can be so interested in Jesus, hanging on his every word, then shouldn't we take a moment to reflect on what our intentions are here today? today? 
how many people in this crowd heard Jesus preach, Jesus preach, a whole bunch of times? And yet, they were only ever interested in Jesus. As a pastor, I have to wonder how many people today have heard preaching about Jesus hundreds of times, years and years. And yet all there ever is is simply an interest in Jesus. I like what he has to say. Especially that stuff about being nice. I think the world could use a little niceness now and then. Who doesn't like certain things that Jesus has to say? Gandhi liked things that Jesus had to say. But my friends, we are reminded again that enthusiasm and interest in Jesus is not the same thing as discipleship. It is not the same thing as following Jesus. And so then the first response is interest and the second response is faith. It's what we see in the paralytic and in the friends. Contrasted to the crowd, and and Mark is really intentional to do that. You see the crowd who's interested, but then you see the friends who are not only interested, they're desperate. They're determined. They can't get in the house no biggie. They're not even going to wait for the sermon to get over. They're just going to go on top of the roof, dig a hole in and drop their friend down because they have to get to Jesus. Do you remember when, when God opened your eyes to who Jesus is? I'm not talking about when you just heard all the teachings about Jesus, but when you knew You were a sinner, utterly hopeless. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can save you out of the depth of that sin. When you knew that, when it so gripped your heart that it changed everything for you, do you remember that? That's the type of determination that these friends show. Nothing's going to stop me from getting to Jesus. I don't care what I got to do. I don't care what barrier I have to break through. Nothing will stop me from getting to Jesus. And as Mark unfolds the idea of discipleship for us, this is exactly what he seeks to show us is evidence of real faith in Jesus. The faithful don't just listen to Jesus. The faithful are determined to do everything they can, even if it would risk public embarrassment to follow Jesus. James says, faith without works is dead. He says, you have faith? I'll show you my faith by the things that I do. This is exactly what these men did showed their faith by what they did. And in light of that, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus says, I see your faith. I see your determination. I see that you will let nothing keep you from taking the kingdom of God in Matthew 11 by force. Forgiveness is yours. That's real faith. That's how the faithful live. And then the third response we see is opposition. Opposition. 
I see a lot of eyes closing, so I'll try to hurry up a little bit. Opposition. We see this in verses 6 and 7. The way that the scribes respond to him. I won't go through the details again, but you can tell quite clearly they are opposed. Who does this man think he is? What gives him the right to do the thing that God can do? And you just want to scream at them. What gives him the right is that he is God, dummy. Okay, maybe not that part. It's a reminder for us that unless the Spirit of God opens your eyes and gives you the gift of faith, you will never see. You will either remain interested, I like that, or you'll be opposed, I want nothing to do with that. But you won't be faithful. Sinclair Ferguson has said, Mark unveils what lies at the heart of the gospel. Men need forgiveness. Jesus gives it. Then he says, the degree to which you see your own need of that forgiveness is the measure of how clearly you understand the gospel. What was the scribes, what was the Pharisees, what was the religious leaders' biggest problem? They didn't think they were sinners. They didn't think they had a sin problem. They thought they were the chosen. They thought they were righteous. They were proud of it. And yet the reality is, a Christian is someone who knows down deep into their bones that they are a sinner. Not just were a sinner, are a sinner. But who knows in an even greater way that Jesus has come to solve our biggest problem and by faith to forgive us of our sins. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your forgiveness that you give to unworthy sinners like us. And God, we pray that you would open the eyes of anyone who does not see that. We ask you because only you can do it. And we pray, O Lord, that you would use us as your instruments to communicate this truth to the community around us, to the world around us, to our friends and family, to strangers, to our neighbors, to anyone and everyone as we realize that our greatest problem has been solved in Jesus Christ. And while we may wrestle with various problems, things that are legitimate, concerning, anxiety-inducing problems, let us rest in the reality that our greatest problem has been met. And when the kingdom of God comes in power, when the king comes again, we will never face another problem ever. Let us rejoice in the realities of that, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.